Well, welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us again this week. Third week in a row we've had one of these sessions. This is the last of these and we're going to be having a poll at the end and sending you an email with some further polling and feedback uh, requests to figure out what we might do in the future. But it's been fantastic to connect these last three weeks and especially to have also our connection with Hope Worldwide and to know that as has been our hope that we'd find people making donations to Hope and particularly to the COVID-19 appeal. So thank you very much for everybody who's contributed and you still can. There's links in the PDF and if you go to the Hope Worldwide UK website you can figure it all out from there or if you can't figure that out then uh, give Rob Payne a ring and he'll let you know what you need to do. So uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, a quick reminder about the aim of what we're trying to achieve with these sessions. It's not to come up with all the answers. The question is, is there a message in the mayhem? It's a question. And it's meant to provoke a discussion and thinking, not necessarily say, aha, this is the answer. And so we hope that today's session will help us again to be stimulated to think and discuss and discern, at least best we can, uh, what God might be saying to us in terms of a message from the mayhem. So I'm going to keep us all muted during the uh, lesson part of the uh, session. We're going to have our two lessons as usual, one from Andy Boachi, one from myself. After that we'll have breakout discussion rooms which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, Becca um, uh, Budget will be praying for us at the beginning and Morris Zimenez will be praying for us at the end if he can get his laptop sorted out because he messaged me to say a bit of a problem. So we'll pray for him and his laptop. Um, and in between two classes and breakout rooms for discussion. Good. If you have any questions, uh, do drop me a line in the chat box. Uh, message me if something comes up, or if you can't get through to me on there, then uh, if you know me, then uh, feel free to message me uh, on the phone. Uh, one way or the other, we'll we'll get a hold of each other. Okay. Um, good. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to next ask Becca if you could unmute yourself and then uh, pray for us. We'd be very grateful. So if you could do that. Thanks, Malcolm. Um, let's pray. Um, dear God, um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to come before you this morning, um, both alone in my bedroom, but at the same time connected to so many others around the UK and beyond God. Um, thank you so much for technology um, and how it allows us to be unified and connected, God, in a time where um, we're also very isolated. Um, so much is going on in our world at the moment, God, so much change is happening um, with the pandemic with the climate crisis, um, with social justice movements, God. Um, I really pray that you'll be with our governments at this time, God, with our leaders. I pray that you'll guide them in their decision-making. Um, and I pray that as disciples, God, you can help us to grow in our love, God, our love for you, for each other, God, um, but also our love for our neighbors, God, and our love for your creation. Um, we're called to be lights on hills, God, that can't be hidden. Um, and I pray that you guide us in being active um, in bringing about your kingdom here on earth, God, as it is in heaven. Um, thank you so much for all the hard work that's been put into these sessions, God. Um, it's just been so encouraging, God, to see um, people use their skills and gifts to help us understand you better. Um, I really pray that you'll help us to have open hearts and minds this morning, God, um, that are receptive to your word. Um, and I really pray that you'll allow the talks to convict our hearts, God, um, and help us to go away from this session and from the other previous two, God, um, really with just renewed convictions in terms of um, how we might live differently going forward, God. Um, I love you so much and I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. 
Amen. Thanks, Becca. All right, without further ado, I'm going to share my screen. And if for some reason you can't see the video or hear the audio, someone will message me and we'll sort it out. So, here we go. Andy Boachi first. Hello, everyone. My name's Andy Boachi, and I'm a lecturer in religions and theology at the University of Manchester. And to round off this series where we interpret the global pandemic, I'm going to consider one of the most Uncertain times in Israel's sacred history, the time of the Babylonian exile at the beginning of the 6th century BC and their subsequent restoration from exile. I'll outline a very brief history of the period, then make a couple of points from the literature that emerged from that period, focusing mainly on Ruth and Esther. So there are three ideas to take away as we think about our post-COVID-19 future within our communities. Firstly, we can't be trapped by our own traditions. Secondly, we ought to pursue a more creative and innovative discipleship. And thirdly, God's love is a certainty, but life is not. The Babylonian captivity is really where Israelite religion began. Before the exile, being a citizen of Judah was the same as worshipping Judah's God. That's why we call it Judaism. It's simply Judah plus ism. It was the worship of the God of the land. And in the ancient world, if people were made to move to a new land, either forcibly or voluntarily, they would simply worship the gods of their new land. It was unheard of that they would worship the god of the land that they left. But now that the Judean exiles had become Babylonian citizens, they still continued to worship Yahweh. And this was the beginning of Jewish religion, a faith that wasn't tied to uh, national citizenship, Jews worshipping the god of Israel, but in Babylon. And of course, with the temple being destroyed and no temple to sacrifice animals in, Jews had to adapt. This was when, for example, synagogues first started to appear. But even after the exile had physically ended, Judah was still not independent. They'd been freed by the Persian king Cyrus, but they were now subjects of Persia and had no access to wealth, to royal influence or to military power. And this sense of powerlessness that they felt was reflected in a new kind of literature that emerged from the period, the so-called short story, of which the most common examples are Ruth, Esther and an apocryphal book called Judith. Now, you'll notice that the um, stars of all these books uh, are women. And they're not just women, but women in compromising positions. Ruth was a woman and a foreigner. Esther was a woman and an orphan and Judith a woman and a widow. And in these narratives, traditionally male values like power and wealth fail. Royal power is almost comically foolish in Esther. Um, economic power couldn't save Ruth in her situation. And military might is proved to be useless in the book of Judith. But we'll focus mainly on Ruth and Esther. As Jews under foreign rule couldn't exploit royal power, economic or military power, these vulnerable women reflected vulnerable Israel. And yet these women were the heroes of these narratives and this, the messages that came from them were of great encouragement to the Jews. These women didn't rely on traditionally male values. They used their wits, their cunning and even their femininity to achieve God's purposes. And this brings me really to the first point. What do we do when we can't lean on the usual traditions and conventions that we get so used to? The social implications of COVID-19 have showed us that we can't simply rest upon things just because that's the way we've always done them. 
Luke depicts Peter's attachment to his tradition in Acts 10. Remember the vision of the sheep that unfolded from heaven. Well, we read this. Luke writes, he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean uh, or profane. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. That's Acts 10 verses 9 through 16. So Peter has this vision. He's supposed to get up and kill and eat these four-footed animals. And his response is, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's impure or unclean. In other words, Peter held on to the Jewish law so tightly that in the initial instance, not even God could get him to break it. Three times God had to say to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, no, God's law forbids it. And you can almost imagine God's uh, response up there. Look, look, mate, I am God. Get up, kill and eat. God was doing something new amongst his people, bringing the message of Jesus to the Gentile world. And yet Peter's attachment to his uh, conventions and Jewish traditions proved a stumbling block to the divine purposes. And it's no wonder that God needed someone with a different, more maverick temperament like Paul to take the message beyond the borders of Israel. But is your attachment today to the way that we've always done things becoming hindrance. Well secondly you all know the story of Ruth. Uh, Naomi uh, had uh, two sons who married Moabite women. Uh, when her sons died uh, one of those Moabite women, Ruth, went back with Naomi to Bethlehem. Now Moab was a sworn enemy of Israel. They were forbidden from worshipping um, with the community in Deuteronomy 23 um, and they were held to be descendants of the children that Lot had with his own daughters uh, in Genesis 19. And Ruth is referred to as the Moabite throughout the narrative. Well, she and Naomi hatched this elaborate plot to seduce a wealthy Israelite farmer called Boaz. Um, and they have a son, uh, Boaz and Ruth, uh, and their son's called Obed. And of course, Obed is King David's great grandfather. So think about this. King David, this quintessential royal Israelite hero is related to the hated Moabite people. I think the key message of Ruth here is that here you have this woman who is weak and vulnerable, in a vulnerable position. Indeed, in Ruth 2 verse 9, Boaz has to reassure her that he's warned his farmhands not to molest her. That's what a foreign woman uh, in another land uh, could expect. And clearly, um, this was uh, traumatic. Um, yet because of her loyalty, to Naomi, her wits and her charm, God ordained her to become King David's great-grandmother. So loyalty, wit and charm, achieving God's purposes when power and wealth and clout could not. You see, God's people have always had to be innovators because their journey as God's people took them down some strange roads, some unpredictable avenues with all sorts of twists and turns. And right now, with our movements having been restricted by the virus, key elements of our discipleship to Christ have been forced to operate in very different ways. In a changing world, how might we need to develop and respond? How might our own discipleship need to be more creative? In what ways in the future might we think of serving the community, of serving one another, and perhaps um, in ways we haven't done before? What new ideas might we develop in this time? Not least of all with the growth, of course, of online churches and the myriad of people who um, attend online services but would never think of going into a religious worship service otherwise. It seems to me 
that one of the key questions facing us now is how do we rethink the gospel from a new day without compromising the gospel itself? We often speak about restoring first century Christianity. I suggested, in fact, we're doing nothing of the sort for the very simple fact this is not the first century. Our early brothers and sisters had their place in God's story. And the reason that we engage with that story is to learn to tell our own 21st century story of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Every generation of believers has to reflect anew on the gospel message, how to engage with it and how to disseminate it. The gospel itself will never change, but the world is changing all the time and we cannot afford to be left behind. As John Carroll, an Australian sociologist who's not religious, once wrote, from a sociological standpoint, the waning of Christianity that's practised in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in this one central task to retell their foundational story in a way that speaks to the times. And in our TikTok recording, Instagramming, I want it right now, post-Christian, post-truth and post-postmodern times, the church cannot afford to lag behind. Well, finally, Esther. Esther is a tale of weak, vacillating men, namely King Ahasuerus and the Prime Minister Haman, and of strong, courageous women, Vashti and Esther. I'm sure you all know the plot reasonably well. So the King Ahasuerus throws this uh, lavish banquet to show off his queen, Vashti, um, and she completely refuses to be paraded, causing a national crisis of disobedient wives. And so the king, to replace Vashti, um, uh, organises an elaborate uh, ancient beauty contest, which was won by this Jewish orphan girl called Esther. Now, in the meantime, the Persian prime minister, Haman, demands homage from all the subjects of Persia. And one person refuses to pay him homage. And that turns out to be Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Well, in Haman's outrage, he persuades the king to issue an edict to have um, Mordecai's people, i.e. the Jews, wiped out. Well, Mordecai convinces Queen Esther to use her wits and to reveal her ethnicity to the king in such a way that the Jews can be saved. Well, like Ruth, this is a short story which reflects an incredibly uncertain time in Israel's post-exilic life. And it's one book in particular which became very popular in Holocaust theology, because of the obvious parallels between Haman and Hitler, two people who tried to wipe out the Jews. And yet even though Esther serves as a basis for such theological discourse, it actually doesn't contain any theology. Esther never mentions God, never mentions Israel, never mentions the covenant or prayer. Now, this was obviously problematic for ancient G Jewish communities. Yet from a literary point of view, readers are doing what truth seekers do all the time with the text of Esther. They are looking for God. We read the following in Esther chapter 4. Hathak came back and related, to Mordecai, and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Just like Joseph being sold by his brothers or Pharaoh's obstinance in freeing the Israelites from captivity in Egypt or Daniel and his colleagues who were in Babylon itself. We see here God working through human decision making and the taking of responsibility. The author of Esther takes for granted that the Jews will be delivered, inviting readers, of course, to see that God is the one who's doing the delivering, even though God's not mentioned. God's deliverance comes about here because human beings accept responsibility to use the position that they're in and to act in faith and with courage, as Esther had clearly committed herself to doing, even in the face of great risk. Remember Daniel's colleagues in Daniel 3. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is what it means to serve God in uncertainty. Who knows if this is why Esther came to the throne? Again, there's no reference to God having brought her there. That seems to be just a position that's presupposed. But it's not stated because it illustrates the way things often work. We don't always see the hand of God. If I said to you last Christmas that you'd spend months locked behind closed doors for fear of, of catching a, a terrible virus that's gripped the entire world, you'd think I was quoting some terrible dystopian novel. And yet here we are. Then again, if someone had told me that my first child would be born 15 weeks prematurely, weighing £1.11 ounces and be written off by the doctors, I probably wouldn't have believed that either. I doubt I could ever have imagined some of the things that I've gone through. There have been days when my son has brought me more joy than anyone or anything in the world. There are times when I've spent entire days physically restraining him to stop him from destroying our house and from gouging my eyes out in the process. And so the question comes, is any part of life really certain? The answer from experience would be an unambiguous no. God's love is certain, but life is not. The opposite of living by faith is living by certainty. Prosperity preachers promise wealth. There are certain sects who claim to know when the end of the world will be. There are some religious theorists who prescribe karma. They tell you do good things and good things will happen to you. And all these people share one common flaw. They're all wrong. As the author of Ecclesiastes demonstrated, sometimes the hardworking remain poor. No one knows how long they have on planet Earth. And sometimes the bad guys and the bullies win. Faith is what connects us to God. Trusting God and not trusting in certainty and thinking you know what lies around the corner is the basis of discipleship. As we've heard in previous week's teaching, we can't be certain about the what's, where's and why's and wherefores about COVID-19. But what if we are in lockdown for such a time as this, when, like Esther, we can reflect upon and rethink how we serve God, what our gifts are, what we're passionate about, what roles we might play in our churches and how we might connect with our communities. So please take time in the discussion to ask, are there conventions and traditions which you hold to too tightly? Can we, like Esther and Ruth, faithfully and creatively adapt to a changing world to bring about God's purposes? 
Can we be at peace knowing that life is not always black and white and that unpredictable circumstances might mean that we have to think very differently about how we serve God? I hope a few of the things that I've shared today will help you think through and address those questions. Thank you very much all for listening. God bless you all. And now I give you, uh, it very, feels very strange to say this, but I give you myself um, and, and Penny uh, as well. You're going to get a surprise for you, so a little uh, uh, appearance from Penny as well, which is wonderful. So look out for her as she appears partway through this, uh, this next class and the second one today. All right. Hello, Malcolm here. And thanks for joining me for the final session. Now, we are going through an unprecedented time of disruption. No question about that. My wife, some of you will know, is a GP, and uh, her life has been turned upside down. The way that she practices her, her work, the, 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 all the staff, the patients, uh, uh, people being ill and some dying. Even our old GP, our previous GP, died recently. He was only 61, not much older than me. A lot of disruption for everybody, a lot of pain for everybody. Uh, my mother was in hospital last weekend, and my father-in-law has been in hospital this week. Fortunately, not connected to COVID-19 directly, and yet, and yet while they were in hospital, they could receive no visitors. None of us were allowed to see them. Very difficult for them and for the rest of the family. We're all going through tough stuff, and we don't know what's coming. To adapt something called Jahari's window, we might say this. We know some things, and we know that we know them. We know we don't know what we don't know. We know we don't know all that we need to know, and there are some things we would like to know. However, we know who knows the unknowable, and he knows what we don't know, as well as what we don't need to know, and how to make them known what, when we need to know it, or something like that. And if that's confused you, that's fine. But the point is, there's a lot of unknowns. But we, as people of faith, believe God being sovereign must have something positively creative to come out of this, and our job is to cooperate with the Spirit to figure out how to be part of it as we move forward. So that's what I'm talking about here today. Now, some of us would like to get this, the future sorted out right now. And come on, let's get on with it and let's figure it all out. And maybe we need some urgency, but we don't need to be in a rush, I would suggest. Instead, we need to, first of all, figure out what the priorities are to help us to discern the movement of God's Spirit guiding us into the future in a way that will be Christ-honoring. So I suggest that we do two things. We start with Jesus and we aim at love. Start with Jesus, aim at love. In other words, we're not aiming at change as such. Some of us, uh, we know the old phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Some of us live by a different motto. If it ain't broke, let's break it and find out what happens. There's a place for that, but I don't think this is the time. We're not looking for change for, to change just because we love change. We're also not lo lo looking to bring back what we had before. Uh, we liked it in the way it was, let's just bring it back. No, things have changed. And thirdly, uh, we're also not looking for what is comfortable or convenient. Just because I don't enjoy driving for an hour and a half on a Friday night to a church meeting doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. So we're not looking for the convenient, we're not looking for the same old, we're not looking for change for change's sake. What are we looking for? What is our aim? I would suggest something like this, that we're looking for what is nearest to the best expression of Christ-like love that we can offer. As I go into the future, as you and I go into the future, what is the best expression of a Christ-like love that we can offer one another and this world? So let's talk about two things. First of all, let's talk about love. One thing we can be sure of is that love is of the highest significance to Jesus and the Christian faith, of course. Uh, John 10, 20, uh, Luke 10, 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour 
as yourself. Or John 15, 12, my command is this, said Jesus, love each other as I have loved you. And we could put in uh, all manner of scriptures in, in here. Now, our understanding and capacity for love is grown by the Spirit as he stretches us. Love doesn't grow unless we're stretched, and the Spirit does it and allows it, sometimes indirectly and sometimes directly. An indirect, one indirect example I'll give you from Acts chapter 7 in verse 60, Stephen is martyred. It wasn't exactly something he expected. It wasn't in his diary for that day, but he was stoned to death. As he's dying, what does he say? He fell to his knees and cried out, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What an incredible expression of love. How could he have been prepared for that? The circumstances stretched his capacity to love so that he could love more like Jesus. Where else do we see a, a, a phrase like that, an example like that? Jesus himself on the cross. Stephen, being aware of that, grows in his capacity to love. I'm pretty sure he didn't have that capacity a few weeks or months earlier, but now he does. This indirect thing that the Spirit allows, which is tragic, grows his capacity to love. How much of an inspiration must that have been to other disciples as they then faced persecution in the, in the years after that in the first century? And sometimes the Spirit works more directly, as it did with Peter, which Andy already talked about a bit earlier. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter goes to a Gentile's house, preaches the gospel, and what happens? The Spirit comes, and then what's the response uh, of the early church? Oh, so the gospel is even for the Gentiles? We didn't realize we were meant to love the Gentiles in this way. And so the Spirit showed them that there were some people they hadn't been loving that they were called to love. So we see the Spirit operating indirectly and directly, and perhaps we need to think about the ways in which the Spirit might do the same things for you and I in our churches today. The church as a body in the New Testament and the individual disciples had to find a way through to love in these tests. Some got there. Stephen got there. Peter got there. I'd say perhaps Demas didn't. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. We don't know the circumstances, but he seemed to have failed a test there. Just because you and I are Christians, I bring this up, because just because we are people of faith doesn't mean that we will grow our love. And if we don't grow our love, we will not know how to live in the future. We won't know how to be God's ambassadors of love in this new world into which we're moving as we go post-COVID-19 or, 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 or whatever is coming exactly. So love. Love's the first priority. How do we grow in it? We allow the Spirit to grow us, but there's some things we might want to think about specifically. Let me offer you a few suggestions. First, if we're going to grow in our capacity to love like Christ, we first of all must experience love from God, of God, with us, His presence. He said He'd come to live in us, John 14, 23. This he, he desires and hopes for and loves having a relationship with us. If we're going to offer love to the world, we've first got to have it. We've got to experience it. I don't mean... I don't mean feelings-based, although feelings are part of it. I had a very emotional prayer time yesterday morning. It was actually very refreshing. So that happens sometimes. But it's not about seeking the emotions. It's about, it's about cooperating with God, about learning about God, about experiencing God in the different ways that we explore, we experience, well, I'd say, or practice three things. Firstly, spiritual disciplines. In other words, prayer, Bible study, those are the most traditionally well-known spiritual disciplines, but also things like silence, solitude and many others. It's important that we employ these, these tools, these channels for the experiencing the love and the presence of God. Spiritual disciplines is one way. A second is community belonging, what we call our fellowship. We experience the love of Christ more fully and understand it better by being in community, by receiving love, offering love, learning about the different ways of love by seeing that expressed in a community. 
And thirdly, um, we experience this love of God, this fellowship with God through our collective worship, praying together, singing together, uh, looking at God's word together. These three things are very important. Spiritual disciplines, community belonging and collective worship. And I go so far to say that if we cut ourselves off from any one of those, we are not going to be able to grow in our experience of and understanding of the love of God. So that's our first priority in love. Then we can offer it to other people, both in our fellowships, but also those who are far from God or those who are vulnerable um, and learn about uh, the challenges facing other people. We can then love people very different from us. And when we're in the middle of a really challenging time regarding race relations and issues around all that and I'm not going to pretend to understand it or be able to deal with it in this class here but there's for sure a deep need to be able to listen to one another empathize the best we can learn about one another's circumstances and experiences and that's going to take a great it's going to take stretching our love the spirit stretching us to love people uh, whatever our background and we need to do that it's, it's important and so we see these things that God allows things to happen so that we can grow in our love. What about loving what God has made as well, the environment in which we live, the creation that he loves? Actually, let me stop for a moment and give you a minute or so from my wife, Penny, talking about these matters. Psalm 24 opens with, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It may seem a bit odd to be in the garden at this point. Recently, many of us have perhaps had a bit more time to be amongst nature, hearing the birds song, watching the spring's flowers come up and out and bloom. Well, nature's in a crisis. It may not be obvious to you, but the last hundred years of human domination on our planet has led to precipitous losses in the natural world. Surprised? Well, are you up for some new, important, and maybe a bit controversial Bible study? Have a look at four podcasts that Malcolm and I have done. They're on Douglas Jacobi's website, and you can search there for Creation Care. There are also details on today's handout and uh, on Malcolm's website. Looking after these little fellows is not just fun for me, but it's also really important got two little froglets in here and they're going to jump. I don't know if you can see them. There's one. He's looking at you. His friend, his brother actually, oh, he's on this side and he's also looking out. Nature does so much for us and I can't resist it. Oh, there's one jumping in the grass now. Have fun looking at the podcast. I wonder what you thought of what Penny had to share. There are different ways, there are many, many ways to love in ways that we may not have considered yet. As we move into the future, let's open our hearts and minds to different ways to love what God loves, who and what God loves. So concluding this point, our aim is not to figure out how to do church right in the future. Okay, let's pray about that. That's not our aim. Our aim is to be the right people, to have the right heart, to have the right attitude, to have the right kind of connection with God that will prepare us to offer, to experience and offer the love of Christ in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in the future. So that's love. So how do we get there? We get there by starting with Jesus. 
I know it's kind of obvious for a Christian, but let's talk about some practical applications and some principles here that might help us to grow in our love. So how did Jesus prepare his disciples? He only had three years with them. And then he had to prepare them for a, well, a, a lifetime and a generation of, of, living, <laughs> of living his teachings in a world that many would reject it and, and persecute it and them. And, and they had no blueprint at all. Uh, for this new era of the church age, one could say. So how did he prepare them? Well, we could look at the whole Gospels, but let me look look just today at the last night he had with them, just before he was arrested. John chapters 13 to 17. Let's take one thing from each chapter. So much more we could do, but just one thing for today. John chapter 13. What does he do? He washes their feet, and then he says, as I've done this for you, so you must do it for each other. In other words, what he's saying is, me, Messiah, King, Lord, I'm washing your dirty, stinky feet. You need to be prepared to do the same thing for each other. That's love. He's demonstrating uh, servant leadership, servanthood in extremis. And he's saying this is the way that uh, you need to live and, and behave around and with each other and people in this world. Uh, that's a principle. Chapter 14, he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I have to leave, but I'm leaving you. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and he will teach you all things. He will guide you and he will remind you. He said, I'm not leaving you alone. You're not orphans. You have the Spirit. Third thing he told them in chapter 15, he says, if you abide in me, then I will help you to bear fruit, fruit that will last and, uh, uh, and bring me glory and bring you a lot of joy. But it's this abiding, this remaining, this abiding in me that will enable all of that. Then fourthly, in chapter 16 of John, he said, in this world you'll have trouble, but don't fear, I have overcome the world. So he's preparing them for the trouble, at least in principle, and telling them that they don't need to fear because of his uh, overcoming of sin and death. In chapter 17, what does he do? A whole chapter in prayer, but he prays for them. I pray for them. They're in the world, they're not of the world, but I pray for them, that they'll all be one. They know that he's praying for them. Now, how might these examples, just these five chapters, these five um, things I've pulled out, how might they serve as an inspiration for us? Well, we note, need to note something. He did not fix the problems in advance that they were going to have. He did not tell them how to fix the problems they were going to encounter. He gave them gifts. He gave them the Spirit, and he helped them to, to, to be able to think through and to pray through those problems as they came up and find new ways of living a life of love. What does it say in Galatians 5, 6? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. But they had to figure out, find out how to get there, how to love through the challenges coming up. So he loved his disciples by preparing them in modeling servanthood. He loved them by promising them ongoing teaching and guidance by the power of the Spirit. He loved them by providing fruitfulness as a promise via a relationship with him. And he loved them by warning them of trouble ahead, reassuring them that he's with them. And he loved them by letting them know he was praying for them. And of course, we know that Hebrews and Romans talks about the fact that he intercedes for us even now. He's praying for you and me whilst we're traveling through this, this dark valley of the shadow of death. So with Jesus as our inspiration and love as our aim, I have, well, since it's COVID-19 that we're sort of framing all this around, I have 19 suggestions for you. Uh, no, I am kidding. Of course, I don't have 19. I have a few. Okay. I have a few suggestions. Some things for us to rethink. Some things for us to put in the pot, stir it around, pray and see what the Spirit teaches us as we pray and read scripture and talk together. What does it mean for the future? 
here are some suggestions. How might we rethink, firstly, the meetings of the body, what we call church meetings, the meetings of the body, the gatherings we have. How might we rethink this, uh, the frequency, the content, and the locations, given what we're experiencing online, the meetings of the body. Secondly, how might we rethink equipping members, equipping members, equipping one another for works of service? How might we do that in the future? Thirdly, how, uh, rethinking outreach, rethinking the way that we spread the gospel, the way that we talk about our faith, the way that we communicate our faith to people who don't yet know God or don't know him well, or how do we, might we rethink our outreach? Fourthly, how might we rethink our engagement with all that is vulnerable? The vulnerable who are perhaps poor, the vulnerable who have other needs and challenges, the vulnerable um, in our society because injustice is something they experience uh, as, as a natural part of their lives, which shouldn't be the case, uh, the vulnerable at uh, the creation, the way in which creation and the environment is vulnerable. How might we rethink our, our engagement with those issues? And fifthly, one, two, three, four, yes, fifthly, how might we rethink the content and methods of communicating God's word? And by that, I'm talking about our preaching and our teaching. How might we rethink the content and the methods of communicating God's word. Some things to think about. Now, not for the sake of it, but to promote love, the love of Christ, as the most important thing we're aiming at. And I think that's important, because we all have our preferences. But how might the meetings of the body, the equipping of members, outreach, engagement with the vulnerable, the contents and methods of communicating God's word be, be, be rethought so that our, the love of Christ can grow in us and we can offer it more, more, more strongly, more clearly, more effectively, to this world in which we live. Let me finish with uh, one last scripture, which has come to mean a lot to me since teaching the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount earlier this year. Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This world needs the love of Jesus. This world needs the love of Jesus offered to, to this world. This world is hurting. It is broken. It is in deep trouble. And, and we need Jesus' love. I need it more. You need it more. The world needs it more. The, uh, the minorities need it more. The vulnerable need it more. The lost need it more. We've got to figure out, everybody, how we can promote love of Jesus, how we can start with Jesus and aim at love so that whatever the future is like for you and me, it's a future where we are carrying, experiencing and, and, and enjoying the love of God more, more than we ever have and taking it to the world that needs it more than it realizes. It needs Jesus more than it realizes. You and I have a sacred responsibility to learn how to be more like Jesus, how to love him, how to be close to him and how to experience his love and then to go and offer it to a dark, lost, and needy world. I hope that what we've talked about in these last few sessions has been helpful, including this one. Take care, and God bless. Uh, thanks, Andy, for your talk, and I'm in a strange position of thanking myself for my talk. Uh, but thank you, Penny, also for what you shared. I'm sure that was the most um, uh, uh, beautiful and edifying part of whatever else happened today. Um, a couple of thoughts just before we finish off for the day and in a moment uh, Morris will be leading us in a prayer. Thanks Morris. Just before that I want to thank uh, all the guys that helped with this. Um, 
you know, I, uh, apart from myself, this is uh, extra to the day job for everybody else. So for Andy B, Andy Zelo, Simon Denning, Rob Payne, Chris Bertels, this is all in their spare time. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And it's just been great to, to work on this together. I want to thank all of you for for helping us and for participating and um, hope to uh, refine and figure out the future as well. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. I will put the recordings of Andy's talk and my talk up online. I'll go on YouTube on the uh, Thames Valley YouTube channel, my YouTube channel. There'll be links to the from the Thames Valley website, my own website, and we'll send out links in an email. So you should get all that. Um, we would like to know some feedback on th this series, which is the first thing we've done like this, but then also thoughts for the future. And so a in a moment, briefly, I'm going to put up a Zoom poll, and I'd like to ask all of us to... Uh, to do that. Maybe I'll do that after we've had the prayer and everything else. So if you could just answer a few questions really quickly, that'll help us. And then we'll send out a more comprehensive survey asking for opinions um, uh, via email um, soon, maybe tomorrow or Monday, but pretty soon. And if you could give us some feedback, that'll help us make some plans for the future, which would be really, really helpful. Um, and if you've got, and in particular, suggested topics for similar events in the future we'd be very interested in that okay um i think that's it um fellas uh, andy and andy and everybody else uh, is there anything i've missed anything to add to that simon or rob or chris or nope so good is that it yeah i think yeah, so okay donate to hope okay doke uh, donate to Hope, someone said, yeah, please do. Uh, we're partnering with Hope in this, and uh, they're doing a wonderful work, especially in the emergency relief for COVID-19. So uh, please do remember that. If you can, uh, make a donation to Hope. That'd be fantastic. There's a link in the PDF and in the Eventbrite invitation or information. Good. Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a scripture, and then, Morris, if you would unmute yourself and pray. Um, just thinking as as I was listening to Andy speak and listening to people talking in our breakout room that I was in, um, maybe think a bit back to the Beatitudes. You know, what does the future hold and how, what kind of people are we to be as we go forward? And I love the way the Beatitudes frame the whole way of thinking about what it means to be in this new covenant and this relationship with God and how lucky we are to have this. So could we be more like this? I mean, we already have this, but can we inhabit it more? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My friends, the kingdom of heaven is ours. Let's figure out the best how to express it for what this world needs. Morris, would you mind unmuting yourself and praying for us? Sure. Thank you, uh... Malcolm. Um, let's pray. Lord of heaven, we, uh, we bow our hearts before you because, uh, because we know that you are good and uh, we know that you are keen to hear from us. We know that you love us 
and that you want us to be close to you and that you want to be close to us. Father, the Bible teaches us that you care about what we think, you care about how we feel, you care about the things that we do, and you want us to be our best for you. Father, we've been made in your image, and you are wholly good. And we thank you. We thank you, Father, for reconciliation. We thank you that uh, we can receive light and uh, have seen light in Jesus Christ and are beneficiaries um, of that goodness, Lord, uh, um, the, the, the great symbol of your love, that you love us all so much that you're willing to sacrifice and you're willing to bleed and you're willing to humble yourself, Lord God. And so we, we, we thank you, Father. We, we are grateful and uh, we are humbled because uh, we struggle to grasp these spiritual things. And I pray, Father, that uh, during a time like this, when we have uh, time to think, when we are shocked, when uh, our regular situation is disrupted, that we must think deeply about who we are and about how we are functioning and how we must be. And I pray, Father, that your spirit will guide us into the future to understand unity, to understand righteousness. I pray, Father, you can help us to um, take responsibility for our own spiritual journey. I pray, Father, that uh, we may seek you like never before and as a result know and uh, gain insight and understanding like never before, that we will grow in our faithfulness to you, our faithfulness to each other, our love, as Paul says in uh, Galatians, um, that uh, we will have that faith expressing itself through love, Lord God. I pray that barriers will be brought down Father, physical barriers, invisible barriers, unconscious barriers, Father, unconscious bias, Lord God, will be removed. I pray for clarity of speech and teaching. Father, we, we think about uh, the spirits being a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline and self-control. We look for that strength, Lord God, and we look for that guidance. We know that uh, the scriptures teach us that you will speak to us by the small, still voice, that you will direct our steps in the way that we should go. And so we, uh, we beseech you to have ears that hear when you speak to us and eyes that see when you show us what is good. I pray for everyone involved in this session, everyone taking part, everyone presenting, everyone listening, everyone thinking, everyone connected to uh, each individual, Lord God, that there will be a, uh, a networking impact as we move away from this meeting, uh, an impact of healing, an impact of truth, an impact of love, and an impact of spiritual fruitfulness so that uh, we as a collective will represent you as the city on a hill, as the light on its stand, so that the world will know that we follow you and uh, are a place where uh, healing can be 
achieved and unity is found and love lives. We thank you again, Father, for times like this. And I pray, for Father, for wisdom from heaven as uh, we move forward exponentially to grow and bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be your disciples, your children, in uh, whatever form is appropriate and uh, wholesome. Father, we love you. We thank you for choosing us for a time like this, for gathering us together at a time like this, and for uh, moving in front of us, Lord God, um, in a time like this. And it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.